This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2015. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Revelation chapter 22 is where we need to go to this morning. For those of you who come to the home groups, there's sheets at the back for you for Tuesday night. Uh, Don't forget that this evening uh, we have David Parsons, and uh, he's going to Revelation chapter 22 and verse 17 only. And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come, and whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Throughout Scripture, God has always given invitations to man. In fact, there are 642 personal invitations in the Bible to come. Some of them are very familiar with You remember how Zacchaeus, when he was up the tree, how Jesus said, Zacchaeus, come down, for today I must abide at your house. And then how he said, come unto me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Also, he talked about those who wanted to come after him, who followed, to follow him. And he says, uh, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. In Isaiah 1.18, come, God said, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Isaiah 55 and 1, ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And in John 7, 37, Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. And in the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, and almost the very last statement, we find God's final invitation. And it's summed up in that word, Come. What a gracious invitation by God. Even his last recorded words in the Bible, as it were, were to come unto him. This is a sevenfold appeal he makes in verse 17. So I want to give you quickly seven reasons why we should accept God's gracious invitation. First of all, simply because the Holy Spirit invites you to come. And the Spirit says, come. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts us. It is the Holy Spirit who tugs at our heart. It was the Holy Spirit whenever we first began to think about eternal things and we first began to think about our soul. That was the Holy Spirit speaking and inviting and drawing us to come. In John chapter 16, 
verse 5 and following, it says, But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, Where are you going? Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. And so we see that the Father is the one who had the plan of redemption. The Son became the Redeemer, but it was the Holy Spirit who drew us to the Redeemer, who drew us to Christ himself. Uh, we can see that work very clearly in Ephesians chapter 1, how that all three worked very closely uh, together in the great plan of salvation. In verse 3 of Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. There's the work of the Father. But then see the work of the Son. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made toward, to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the good, his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven, which are on earth, in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will that we should first trust it in Christ should be to the praise of his glory there's the work of the son and then there's the work of the Holy Spirit verse 13 in whom you also trusted after you heard of the word of truth the gospel of your salvation in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory and so we see all three working together for our salvation in Genesis 3 and 6 says it is the spirit who strives with man. In fact, it says, my spirit shall not always strive with man. And so it's the Holy Spirit who strives with the heart of man to draw them to Christ. In John 6, 63, it says, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing, but the spirit is the one who gives life. In John 3, 
Jesus said that we are born again of the Spirit. So thank God for the Holy Spirit today. The Holy Spirit was the one who invited us, who drew us, who welcomed us, who invited us to come uh, to the Lord. The Holy Spirit is not an it, it's not a force, not a thing, not some vague nebulous stuff out there. The Holy Spirit has personality. He can be grieved, the Bible says. He can be vaxxed. He can even be blasphemed. The Holy Spirit can be quenched. And so the Holy Spirit, first of all, and the Spirit says, come. Then the bride says, come. That's the church. And so the church invites men and women and boys and girls to come to Christ. How does the church do that? Well, simply by its presence. Thank God in our wee country. I, I don't know if you've, I'm sure you have, if you've been ever visiting hospitals, as I do a lot, particularly in, in the city. Uh, when you go up to the Royal, and maybe you go way up to Ward 5 or 6 or 7, away up there, and maybe you're walking along the corridor and you look out over the city, Try to count how many spires you see in the city of Belfast. I mean, there's so many church spires. And that's only the churches with spires that you can see. So many as a witness, as an invitation. In this wee town of ours, there's at least six or seven places of worship where God is worshipped. And every door is open. There's an open invitation to come in. I, I think even on Sunday morning, when you put your Bible underneath your arm, although a lot of you now it's your tablet and it's your phone, but your Bible underneath your arm, and you put it underneath your arm and you go out to get into your car, your neighbors see that, they know you're going to church. And, and in a way, it's, it's an open invitation to come. So the church invites you to come by its presence. The church invites you to come by its preachers. And John 10 says, how will they hear without a preacher? The greatest privilege and honor and responsibility that we as preachers has is to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and to witness to his gospel and to let men and women know that he's still saving that he's still redeeming men and women. I'm preaching to the converted this morning, but we forget these things. And so our primary job when we preach and teach is to share the gospel in all of its forms, in all of its ways, that men knows that there is good news that they can come to Christ. The church invites you to come not just by its presence or by its preachers, but by its people. In Acts 1 and 8, you shall be filled with the Holy Spirit and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so every single one of us that knows Christ is a personal witness to the gospel. How you live, 
how you speak, how you act, what you do, how you run your business, your family, among your neighbors, all of that is giving witness to Christ. We're either witnessing to Christ or we're witnessing to something else. But we want to witness for Christ, don't we? And so the church, by its presence, by its preachers, by its people, is a witness. And think of Easter time, and there's Wilson with that big eight-foot cross standing out there, Main Street Moira. What a witness. What a witness. There's hardly anybody in this country that doesn't know what the cross is. And when they see that cross, it's a witness for Christ. It's a witness for the gospel. And many stops and talks to him and asks him about it. Why do you do this? Or what does that John 3.16 mean on there? And of course, he's happy to share and to tell them. And I know that Wilson goes to all these rock concerts and all these gigs and things. And oftentimes he takes that, he was at that U2 thing the other night and took that big cross with him and stood outside there. What for? As a witness, as a witness to Christ. So the church, the bride says, come. Other Christians say, come. Let him who hears say, come. Very often the most effective witness is somebody that has just heard the gospel and has come to Christ. Somebody who's just saved oftentimes is a very effective witness. It doesn't mean they have all the theology of salvation because they don't know that yet. They haven't studied that yet, but they have the experience of it, and they're full of it. And their friends, which are many who are unsaved, see the change in them. There is an immediate change in their life, and they see that, and that's a witness. Oftentimes, it's the new believer because they still have that circle acquaintance who doesn't come to church the way they hadn't come to church. And suddenly they have become the main witness to all their friends and to all their family and to all their relations. And they see the change in their life and that becomes a witness. And in a sense, it's inviting them to come. I remember uh, a friend many years ago, in fact, he was a policeman, uh, but at that time he worked in a, in a shop. He worked in a grocery shop. He became a policeman. He's actually a Baptist pastor today. And uh, he said that when he got saved, uh, he was so excited and he was so full of it and his mind was full of it all the time. And he said that a, a lady came in one day and she bought a bottle of sauce, bought a bottle of sauce and, and uh, she reached the sauce over and uh, he said, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> she looked at him as if, what? <laughs> he said, it was out of me before I knew cause, because I was thinking about Jesus and what he had done for me and I was thanking him all day. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Thank you, Jesus. And... Uh, but sometimes a new believer is just like that. They're just so excited and just so full of the, the joy of what Christ has done for them. And then there's the utter necessity to come. And let him who thirsts come. Those who thirst recognize their need. They recognize and they feel and they sense their need. If you were in a desert place and you had no water 
and you were very, very thirsty, you would recognize it, you would sense it, you would feel it, you would know it, you would experience it. Nobody would have to tell you're thirsty. You know you're thirsty. All you want is water to quench your thirst. There's an utter necessity. And thank God for the Holy Spirit who can get us into the place where we recognize our need. We, we try to quench our thirst with this word, but it doesn't work. Right. And it's never going to work. Uh, and you see the testimony of those who have lived this life in this world who has had everything their hearts desires, and at the end of it, they're still not fulfilled. They're still thirsting for something they do not know to fill that and to quench that. But Jesus says, If any man thirsts, let him come unto me. He's the one who can quench the thirst. In John chapter 4, John chapter 4. Remember the woman at the well that met Jesus? Verse 9, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. And then you know how Jesus went on and opened up her heart and saved her. And she became a great evangelist for the whole city. Those who are thirsty recognize they've got a thirst, and only Jesus can fulfill that thirsting. No excuses for not coming. And whoever desires, Revelation twenty two seventeen, whoever desires, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But people make excuses, do they not? Most of us made them for long enough. Do you know what an excuse is? Somebody says the definition of excuse is the skin of a reason stuffed with a lie. In other words, there's a veneer of truth, but it's actually just the skin of a reason, stuffed with a lie. Some say, but I'm too bad. I'm too bad. My sin is too grievous. I have fallen too far. My life is something that I am thoroughly ashamed of. Surely not even God could love me and forgive me for all the things that I have done. But he can and he will. Come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. 
There's nothing beyond redemption. There's no man, no woman that is beyond redemption. If they humble themselves and repent of their sin and come to Christ, then Christ can and he will save. There's nobody too bad. There's some tremendous testimonies of those who were at the very dregs of society, but God raised them up and lifted them up and saved them. Some say I'm too bad. And then there's others who say, well, I'm doing my best. I'm, I'm, I'm trying my hardest. And I, I think by my efforts, I, you know, I haven't done anything really bad. Nobody's perfect, I know that, but I, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't robbed a bank. I haven't attacked anybody. I haven't cheated big time. And so I, I think that God, in his mercy, I think when I get up there, that he'll let me in because I've done my best. But the Bible says there's none righteous, not one. All have sinned and can short of the glory of God. And James 2.10, James hits the nail on the head. He says, Forever, whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles in just one part is guilty of all of it. Say, David, that sounds a wee bit unfair. That if you just stumble in one part, you're guilty as if you broke all of God's law. That's because God is so righteous. His holiness is so pure. <laughs> His standard is so high that he can accept nothing less than perfection. But you say, David, but none of us is perfect. That's right. That's why we need the Savior because he's the only one who kept God's law perfectly. He fulfilled God's law. He didn't just keep it. He fulfilled it. And so all of us are fallen creatures who needed the Savior, who was perfect, who lived a perfect life. So our best is never going to be good enough. There's only one who is good enough. And there's only one who prayed, paid the price for our sins. Then there's others who say, well, I have plenty of time. I'm still young. I read a post on Facebook the other day. I thought it was good. There was a man who said he was going to get saved at the 11th hour, but he died at 10.30. <laughs> I'm still young. I'm healthy. I've got my whole life ahead of me. But we know how suddenly life can end, even for the young. Proverbs 27 and 1, Boast not yourself of tomorrow, for you do not know what a day brings forth. Look at Luke 12. And Jesus warned of this. Luke 12, verse 13. Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. 
quickly said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded it plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. There, there I will store all my crops and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. And whose will those things be which you have purchased? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and not rich towards God. Notice how many eyes and mys he said. He thought he had lots of time. But God said, you're a fool this night. Your soul shall be required. So there is no excuses for not coming to the Lord. Coming to Christ is so simple. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. It is so simple. Whoever desires, let him take. This is something that we have to do. The gift is offered. We have to take it. Say, well, how do you take eternal life? How do you take that gift? How do you take him? And the simple answer is by faith. There is no other way. Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Could that be any simpler? Ephesians 2.8-9, for by grace you have been saved through faith that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that none of us could boast. If you can confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God is raised from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It is so simple, isn't it? It is so simple that a boy or a girl can receive Christ. He's made it such a simple act to do. Now, it requires repentance on our part. It requires us turning away and turning to him. But after that, simply asking him by faith, trusting and believing that he hears that simple prayer and he comes in and then the change is dramatic. It's a simple, simple thing. We complicate it, but actually it's simple enough. The life he offers is a free gift. Let him take of the water of life freely. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that none of us can boast. The price has already been paid on the cross. The full price that our minds cannot comprehend the depths of it. But the thing has been completely and utterly paid. When Jesus died on that cross, when he said it is finished, it meant it's paid in full. Tetelestai, three words, paid in full. Nothing can be added. Nothing can be taken away. The price has been paid. What did it cost Jesus? Everything. Everything. What did it cost the Father? Everything. 
it cost the father to see his own beloved son dying on a cross where he had to turn his back on him. It cost him everything. What pain, what hurt to accomplish our salvation. What payment could we possibly give God for his sacrifice for us? <laughs> it's ridiculous, isn't it? It's a free gift. Imagine if a friend of yours who had lots of money and imagine they came to you and they looked at your rusty old rust bucket of a car and they took pity on you and they said, do you know what? I'm going to buy you a brand new car. 25000 it's going to cost. But listen, I have lots of money and I'm happy to spend it on you. I want to buy you a car. Why do you want to do that? Because you're my friend and I see your need and I want to give this to you. Imagine how they'd feel if you say, well, I can't accept that. I need to give you some. Here, let me get, give you a fiver. Wouldn't that be ridiculous? I know it's a stupid illustration, but wouldn't that be ridiculous? Ridiculous for two reasons. First of all, it would be an insult to the man who wants to give you a gift. Secondly, a fiver would be an insult against 25,000, wouldn't it? You wouldn't even get a fiver's worth of petrol these days, hardly, hardly wet the bottom of your tank. That would be ridiculous. So why do we think after God has made such a great, immense sacrifice that we could possibly offer him anything for that gift? It would be an insult to Calvary. But that's what people try to do. They try to say, I need to offer God something. I need to work for something. I need to give God something. All we need to give God is our life. That's all we need to do. Give him our lives. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? It cost God everything. I think it was C.H. Spurgeon said that your soul is worth more than 10,000 worlds. <laughs> Nothing could repay God for the life that he has given in his son. God's final invitation. Right there in the last book of the last chapter, almost the last word, he's saying, Come to me. What an invitation. And that invitation has been given every single day. In the schools, on the street, in the churches, in the homes, on the factory floor. It's given everywhere. And what a joy it is when one person responds. When just even one person comes to Christ, what a joy and a thrill that is. The Bible says the rejoicing in heaven over one single sinner that repents. Heaven breaks out into joy. Why do you think heaven's such a joyful place? Because all over the world, even as we speak, there's people who's bound the need of Christ and they're coming to Jesus and they're accepting the gift of salvation and their lives is completely and utterly changed. Lots of talk today about the Muslim situation and what's going on in the Middle East. But what we don't hear as often, you'll certainly not hear it in the BBC, about the hundreds, about the thousands of people that are finding Christ all over the Middle East. God has given them visions of himself, of Jesus, 
and they're going, they're looking for Christians to explain this to them, and they're coming in their thousands to Christ. There's underground churches all over in the Middle East. There's a, a television program that's beamed into the Middle East. I think it's Acts, I think it's Sat 7. It's called Sat 7. And it goes in all over the Middle East. Christian, evangelical, time of being born again, preaching the gospel all over the Middle East. And they're beaming into their homes and they're coming to Christ by the thousands. Hallelujah. No wonder the devil's mad. No wonder he's angry because that's going on behind the scenes continually. So God is good. The Son is great. The salvation is so wonderful and it's so free to us. Lord, we just stop a moment and we give you thanks for so great salvation. We thank you for the simple, simple message of your gospel. Lord, you made it so that all we have to do is to receive. We don't have to even fully understand it. Just receive and then you'll begin to show us and teach us. So, Lord, today, even in this house, even those who will listen by podcast, maybe in the privacy of their car or in their home or in the hospital, I pray that they will come to you, Lord, that they will repent of their sins and say, Jesus, save my eternal soul today. Come into my life. Cleanse me from all sin and give me your life that I may live for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I give you thanks, Lord, for this. And I pray that they will do this. And Lord, that you will change our lives forever. Thank you for eternal life that we have today. Thank you, Lord, that we made us fit for your heaven couldn't do it ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of any of our works, so that we have nothing to boast in, only the price that was paid for us at Calvary. So we give you thanks for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can also watch the Sermon of the Month video at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal or download the sermon video through our iTunes video podcast. For more information, visit us at www.mpc.org.uk.